Well, it's my honor to introduce our guest speaker for today. Jim, Pastor Jim Stevanis is with us here this morning with his wife, Jackie, and uh, they come to us from the Dublin area. He's been pastoring uh, Fellowship Baptist Church in Dublin for many years and has recently made the decision to uh, retire from full-time ministry and uh, is interested in continuing on his work in ministry, but in a part-time capacity and specifically focusing in, in on the area of biblical counseling. And uh, Pastor Jim is a guy that I've known for some time uh, because we're both kind of in that biblical counseling, newthetic stream. Sometimes I've, we've consulted together on things and tried to pick each other's brains. Uh, to be fair, I've picked his brain more than he's picked mine because there's a lot more in there than is my, in my brain, uh, truth be told. And uh, if I'm re being real honest, I've, I've uh, you know, really uh, sent him some cases that uh, were particularly challenging, and he's handled them with great skill. And so I think uh, Delaware Bible Church would be, uh, we would benefit highly from uh, having a guy like him around and, uh, and Jackie as well. So uh, he is candidating today for um, the, the part-time, kind of 20-hour-a-week position. Uh, we, we were trying to find a pastor of discipleship. We've kind of broken that into two part-time jobs now, and um, uh, so he'd be handling the more of the counseling side of the discipleship aspect. Um, tonight, I just want to give you a little bit of a heads up for tonight. Tonight, when we get regather back here at 6 p.m. for Q&A, uh, I'm going to start with two questions that I'm going to ask him. I'm going to ask him to give a testimony, uh, you know, give his life testimony, how he came to know Christ and how the Lord led him into full-time ministry and all that. And then the second thing I'll ask is uh, for him to articulate how he came into the whole biblical counseling realm and specifically the, the newthetic stream. Uh, I'd like to hear, uh, like for you to hear how that, how the Lord unfolded that in his life. And then we'll open up the floor for you to ask whatever questions that you might have. So please make it a point to join us tonight at 6 p.m. right here in this room. All that is to say, ladies and gentlemen, it's my distinct honor to introduce to you today our guest speaker, Pastor Jim Stevanis. Thank you, Scott. Well, it is good to be here. I have met several of you, and without fail, all of you have been sweet and kind and gentle. Um, from the prior pastor my first impression, Scott, uh, of this young man that you have beside you who used to be uh, the pastor here is just a humble, gracious, sweet spirit. So, uh, and that only continues, Scott. I appreciate uh, your leadership and, and uh, how transparent and clear you've been, strong leader. Delaware is blessed. Delaware Bible is blessed to have such a good and godly lineage of pastors. That is not always true. Uh, could I open in a word of prayer? Lord, thank you. Thank you for your great grace upon us each and every day, every moment. Oh my, where would we be apart from your grace? Instead, we are saved by your grace, kept by your grace, your all-sufficient grace. Help us as we let the scriptures speak to us. Help us to have those eyes open, ears open as we hear and see what truth is pertinent for each one of us this morning. That, uh, that you would open wide our hearts to receive your incredible counsel from on high. 
that, that our lives would resemble and conform themselves to the image of your son, that we would keep short accounts with sin and long accounts with righteousness, that we would be a people surrendered to you, that we would be a people committed to your word and your greatness, we pray in your son's name. Amen. Well, wonderful are the captivating stories of the Old Testament. And these are stories that, uh, that we share, we've heard down through the quarters of time in Sunday school, and as parents that we have shared them with our kids uh, year after year. I'll refresh you with some of those as I go down memory lane. There is Abraham waiting 100 years. I mean, imagine waiting 100 minutes for your meal. And here's a guy who waits 100 years for a son and then obediently offers up that son on an altar where God intervenes. There is Joseph, the favorite son, who is hated by his brother so much so they want to get rid of him. They want to kill him. They settle selling him into slavery where God would use that and elevate Joseph to second in command to save a nation. There's Moses who would lead his people out of Egypt and through the Red Sea. There is Joshua, I love the battle of Jericho. Seven days marching around this impenetrable city, and the seventh day they blow the trumpets and the walls come tumbling down. There is Elijah, the astounding victory at Mount Carmel over these false prophets as God brings down fire from heaven. There is Nehemiah and his commitment to rebuild the city, the temple, despite the lack of resources, despite the lack of people. There is Esther. You know her story. She intervenes. She goes into the presence of the king. It's her husband, but it's the king. And she risks her life in order to save a nation. There's Job, one of my favorite. Job, who loses everything in the course of two cycles. And then, in the end, gets it all back as there is a deeper relationship Job has with God. There is Daniel's three friends, not willing to bow down to an idol, so thrown into the fiery furnace. And what happens to those three? Well, a fourth one is then there with them and not a hair on their body is singed. There is Daniel himself thrown into the lion's den, survives because God is with him and delivers him from the jaws of the lions. There's Jonah, oh my, Jonah, 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 disobedient Jonah who goes the wrong way. God redirects him back the right way. A great fish comes along the scene, pukes him out, throws him to Nineveh, shares the message. All of these stories remind us of the power of God of the presence of God, of the protection of God. These are stories we, we, we engage and we, we, we love and we continue to share them. They strengthen our faith. They remind us of the God who is absolutely in control. They encourage us to press on when we want to give up at times. They picture the power of God. But of all of the stories of the Old Testament, I am persuaded that one in particular for me remains at the forefront. And it really heightens the supernatural deliverance of God, uh, of, of his people, the Israelites. It's a story where the human odds are stacked against man, but when it comes to odds, it doesn't matter with God. If the odds are stacked against you, if God is for you, the odds matter not. This is a story of an Israelite and a Philistine, of an unknown and a well-known, of a slingshotter, and a mighty warrior of a shepherd boy and a giant. Now you know who this is and what the story is, David and Goliath. I invite your attention to 1 Samuel chapter 17. As we consider this well-known and well-read account, 
and discover the lesson that God intends for us. In 1 Samuel chapter 7 is this dramatic, exciting battle between David and Goliath and how this little stone sovereignly hits the temple and takes down the giant Goliath. Now, is that a lucky shot? Hardly. It is an awesome God, absolutely. And in the practical application of this story over the years, normally there is reference made to the giants in our life. One of the uh, well-known orders of the word and perhaps one of the, the pastors who influenced me early on in my, my spiritual walk was a guy named Chuck Swindoll. And Chuck Swindoll could just tell the story. <clears throat> I mean, he could captivate you. And he would bring in all kind of interesting nuances and, 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 and bring you as if you were there in the story. And he writes this about this narrative between David and Goliath. He, in fact, he titles it from a study, The Teenager Who Whipped the Giant. Here's what he says. The story of David and Goliath is reassuring because we all face giants in our lives. These may not be nine feet, nine inches tall. They may not even be people. They may involve fears, difficult circumstances, worries about the future. Facing giants is an intimidating experience, he continues. Your giant may be a trip to the hospital, a breakup of a family, a horrible past with memories you just can't shake. Doing battle is a lonely experience. Although others may be near you to support, the battle is ultimately between you and the giant. Winning victories is a memorable experience. David could face a giant because he had already faced a lion and a bear. Swindoll continues, many of the giants that we face are powerless, for they all, for they are nothing more than empty shells having no substance at all. And what is your giant? Here are a few possibilities. Depression, illness, death, regret, lust, self-doubt. Has any of these disrupting giants lumbered into your house? Is there a certain aspect of facing your giants that may be hindering your efforts, perhaps intimidation or loneliness? Whatever your giants are, don't despair. If Goliath could be toppled, so can your giant. Take a moment, commit your giants to the Lord, then start your giant-killing plan of attack. Now, there's no doubt that Goliath was quite a giant for David. I mean, he stood before David, and he towered over David. But is killing giants and developing a giant-killing strategy the main takeaway that we are to have from this account with David and Goliath? I, I, I would hope that if we take a fresh look, and it's always good. I remember going through seminary, and one professor used to, in particular, repeat this over and over to us. He would say, when you come to the text, come to it as if it's the first time you're seeing it. Because the danger there is that you bring with you what you already think it says. And are you really hearing the voice of God through Scripture? And so as students in the classroom with God as the professor, let's look at the textbook today, and let's look at this passage in 1 Samuel 17. But to get there, we have to go to the background. Chapter 15, I invite you back. If we turn to chapter 15, we get some very straightforward instructions from Samuel to Saul. Chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> the Lord sent me to anoint you, king over his people, over Israel. 
Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish what Amalek did to Israel, how he laid wait for him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now in divine retribution upon his enemies, here's God's instruction to Saul through Samuel to completely and to utterly annihilate the Amalekites. Why? Because they were a wicked and evil people. They had, in times past, severely hindered in, uh, the, the people of God. In fact, track back in Exodus 17, you don't need to go there. Let me read what God said to Moses. Write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. That the Amalekites, so wicked to the Israelites, God doesn't forget. God judges and sometimes we don't think it ever happens. It happens in the right time, but it's always the right time with God. And now is that time. The time has come for God to now fulfill the promise that he made that the Amalekites will be wiped off the face of the earth. Now, to what extent is Saul going to follow through with this? To what extent is Saul going to obey this? Verse 7. And Saul attacked the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, which is east of Egypt. He also took Agag, king of Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. And then verse 9 has that word B-U-T. Just underline it because you know something's going to change. Something isn't right. Something is going to go contrary to the plan. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless, that they utterly destroyed. So Saul disobeys the clear command of God, and he does not utterly destroy all the Amalekites in their possessions. Now, the sad commentary then that traces through this chapter follows, and it's recounted. Verse 10. Now, the word of the Lord came to Samuel, saying, I greatly regret... This is the Lord regretting that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me. I mean, you get the idea of how important obedience is to God. And when we aren't, God does not look at that favorably and has not performed my commandments. And it grieved Samuel, and he cried out to the Lord all night verse 22. Then Samuel said, has the Lord his great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. And then there's verse 26. But Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord. Do you see the repetition here? That God takes seriously when we don't obey his word. 
for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And finally, verse 35, and Samuel went no more to see Saul until the day of his death. Nevertheless, Samuel mourned for Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now, Saul's thinking clearly was not God's thinking. And because Saul did not do exactly what God commanded him to do, Saul now is in line for a demotion, actually retirement. His replacement's going to be forthcoming. But woven into Saul's responses in chapter 15 is a mindset, is a paradigm that's fixed on humanistic perspective, that his responses pattern at times and reflect our constant challenge that we each face in decision-making. For Saul, and for us at times, our perspective is just driven horizontally. It's we are tempted to walk by sight, not by faith. Uh, to begin to make decisions based primarily on our circumstances, on the pressures, on the appearances of people and situations around us. It's not that we ignore God completely. It's just that God is not the predominant go-to. He's not the default. He's not the one that when choices are made, we first go to him. Now, consider the horizontal mindset, how it plays out in the, the life of the main characters in this narrative. In chapter 14, the closing verse, there's a comment that's made about Saul's continuing wars with the surrounding nations. Look at the last verse of chapter 14. Now, there was fierce war with the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he took him for himself. Now, here's the point is that for to Saul, bigger was best that give me the strongest, give me the bravest. I mean, if you look impressive, you're on my team. It's kind of like when you're in grade school, right? And, uh, you know, I'm going to pick for my team the bigger, you know, stronger, most athletic people. And uh, I wasn't always the, the biggest and strongest. Um, and, but yet here's the point, once again, is that the horizontal perspective that was driving Saul was that bigger was better. And then we move to the actions of his army. Look at the next chapter. Look at verse 21. Chapter 15, verse 21. I'll get you caught up here. Or I guess I won't at all. I got it. You know, there's this little thing it's, it, when it's upside down. <laughs> All right, now we're good to go. So look at chapter 15. Notice the people, the, the army, their response. And uh, verse 21. But the people took of the plunder, sheep and oxen, the best of the things which should have been utterly destroyed to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and Gilgad. Again, what are they doing? They're basing it upon what they see. Appearance is what's driving them. And what is, what is Saul's response to them? Verse 24, Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, I've transgressed. But listen to what he says, the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people 
and obeyed their voice. That, that to Saul and to the people, their idea was best. And, and then the next chapter, as the selection process begins to unfold, that uh, of who God's choice is going to be to fulfill and replace Saul. Chapter 16, this even confronts Samuel, verse 6. So it was when they came that, here are the sons being prayed at before Samuel, that he looked at Eliab and said, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. So here is even Samuel, and he's looking at these sons, and he's looking at this first one, he's like, that's the guy. He's impressive. His physique, let's, let's pick that guy. Then we have verse 7, but. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Here's the point. Is that to Saul, at least at first, nice appearance was best. That physique was the priority that, that, that here's the, the thinking is that when you're horizontally driven, that you will make your decisions based upon only what your eyes are telling you. And it is easy to sidestep the scriptures and the counsel of the word, and we allow ourselves to be driven by sight and not faith. Major point of the passage is that God has the bigger picture. Are you not thankful this morning that God sees a bigger picture than you do? Are you not thankful that your God is like helicoptering over your life and he sees the beginning and the end, he sees everything in between, he knows what's coming your way, he's equipping you, he's given you all the grace. I, I love that each day we can say confidently that God has measured out his grace and exactness to us each and every day so that no waste of grace ever occurs. God knows what's coming our way, and so God has the bigger picture. But for Saul and for the people and for Samuel, even at first, they're saturated in this horizontal thinking that is so true of us from time to time when we want to take things into our own hands instead of letting that remain in God's hands. Now, how do we do that? Well, I have counsel a little here and there, and I see this in couples. And when a couple are going through a rough patch in their marriage, there is a tendency to run out and to get all the self-help books on marriage so that, man, I can be a better romancer of my wife, so that I can be a better lover of my wife. And, and they, they run out and they do that without first consulting the one who created marriage and without consulting the book of books itself or someone's financial picture is in shambles. And so they, they, they rush out and they get a loan to cover it. Or maybe they work a second job to provide extra income. But they do that instead of first seeking out the all-powerful God in prayer. Or one's health is declining and the aches and the pains come more quicker and I can relate with this as we get older. And there is the temptation to rush to the, to the medicine cabinet or to rush to a personal physician instead of first consulting the great physician. Or my work, man, it is so stressful and challenging and so I, I'm going to leave that job and get another job instead of consulting the chief shepherd who may just want you to stay where you are and to learn what he has for you in that 
present challenge. Now hear me right, there is nothing wrong with self-help books. There's nothing wrong with parental assistance, with personal physicians, with another occupation, but when that becomes the go-to, when that becomes the first option, the first choice, then we have subtly allowed ourselves to default to horizontal thinking where God may be sort of pushed into the background. Instead of dependent children, God now finds himself with independent children who are doing things their own way and have a less reliance upon our God. Do I need to remind us that precious promise of Romans chapter 8? It hasn't been waived, it hasn't been withdrawn, it hasn't been rescinded, it hasn't been retracted, that God works all things together for good. To those who love him, who are the called according to his purpose, that God has a plan, and those things that work together for good are not always fun. They're not always comfortable. They're not necessarily enjoyable at the moment, but they will accomplish what God intends for us. This is the background scenario for chapter 17. This is what you might say is the introduction. And I want to now kind of look at the passage itself. Chapter 17, the battle between David and Goliath. Is it first a passage about killing giants in our life, or is there something more to it? If, the, if there's anything about a battle going on here, it's not so much the physical, it's actually the spiritual. Notice what David himself says, verse 26. Chapter 17, verse 26. Then David spoke to the men who stood by him, saying, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? That, that David acknowledges there's a battle going on here. There's this guy, Goliath. He's pretty tall. He's right there in front of us. But David does not succumb to the thinking that it's between him and Goliath. That there is someone else in the equation. And this is the challenge that we must always have. That we have an equation in life. And it's called the variables are you and me. But the constant is God. And sometimes we get the constant pushed off to the side and we major on the variables, you and me. But the constant of life is our God who remains steadfast and sure at the forefront of our lives. Notice verse 37. As David goes forth to battle, check out his thoughts that Scripture tells us. Verse 37, moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You see what David's doing here? He's not saying, hey, I'm going to take you down. He's saying, God's going to take you down. That, that the battle is the Lord's. It's not David's. That David's reliance is on the Lord. That, that, that God will deliver me, verse 38, Saul has a, another plan. Saul, who walks by sight. So Saul clothed David. Here, take all this stuff. Put this stuff on you. That'll help you as you face this giant. Verse 38. So Saul clothed David with his armor, and he put a bronze helmet on his head, and he also clothed him with a coat of, of mail. And David fastened his sword to his armor, and he tried to walk, for he had not tested them. And David said to Saul, I cannot walk with these for I have not tested them. So David took them off. 
God will deliver me, not this military earth suit. David's vertical thinking is firmly fixed on his God, and it only continues. Notice verse 50. So David, or excuse me, verse 45, back up there. Then David said to the Philistine, to Goliath, to the giant, you come to me with a sword, with a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you and take your head from you. And this day I will give the carcasses of the camp of the Philistines to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Then all this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. And then the summary statement, verse 50. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in the hand of David. The main emphasis in this passage is upon God, not man. It's upon Jehovah, not David. Have you not heard before that there are no great men of God? but there is a great God in men. And this is what David's projecting and telling us that his dependence is upon the God who is fighting for him. That David's confidence doesn't rest in, in him fighting the battle, but the God who fights our battles. That David is not relying upon his own devices, his own ploys, his own human instruments. Instead, his assurance is rested and trusted and rooted in the God of Israel and not his own diminutive earth suit. The entire emphasis of the passage is not David's defeat of Goliath, but God's defeat of David, uh, of Goliath. There is a, and Joshua brings this out as God appears to Joshua and there is a battle to fight for Joshua, that the battle is always the Lord's. The battle plan is always the Lord's, but obedience is ours. Our thinking gets a bit skewed when we depend upon our own selves, our own um, ploys and devices. Now, I want you to look at the aftermath of this, because this is where it begins to crystallize, where it begins to come together, where we begin to see, now, the main emphasis of this narrative. The text carefully points attention to the man, to the God of men, and not to the man of God. Now, how it does that, back to chapter 16, we have to see something that takes place between Saul and David that we've likely read before, but I want you to read it again. Chapter 16, notice beginning in verse 14. But the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a distressing spirit from the Lord troubled him. And Saul's servant, verse 15, Saul's servant said to him, Surely a distressing spirit from God is troubling you. Let our master now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is a skillful player on the harp. And it shall be that he will play it with his hand when the distressing spirit from God is upon you, and you shall be well. So Saul said to his servants, Provide me now a man who can play well and bring him to me. 
Then one of the servants answered and said, Look, I have seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful and plain, a mighty man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, and a handsome person, and the Lord is with him. Therefore Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey loaded with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them by his son David to Saul. So David came to Saul and stood before him, and he loved him greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Then Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. And so it was, whenever the Spirit from God was upon Saul, that David would take a harp, play it with his hand, then Saul would become refreshed and well, and the distressing spirit would, be, would depart from him. So David comes to the aid of Saul. Saul is distressed. There is this distressing spirit sent upon him. And when that distressing spirit gets the upper hand, David is invited in, and David plays his music. And David soothes the soul of Saul. The importance that Saul attaches to David, again, look at verse 21. And he, Saul, loved him, David, greatly, and he became his armor bearer. Verse 22, please, please let David stand before me, for he has found favor in my sight. That, that there's a connection, a union, a bond taking place between Saul and between David, his favorite musician. Yet we move to the end of chapter 17. And this is the epilogue of the battle between David and Goliath. A rather odd conversation ensues, and it concludes chapter 17. We begin in verse 50 of chapter 17. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him, but there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran and stood over the Philistine, took his sword, drew it out of a sheath, killed him, and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. Now the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines as far as the entrance of the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounded of the Philistines fell along the road to Sharam, even as far as Gath and Ekron. Then the children of Israel returned from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their tents. And David took the heads of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, Whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. You got to like scratch your head for a moment and say, What? David has just killed Goliath. Yet King Saul has no idea who this David guy is. It's a bit odd when you consider the end of chapter 16, where David is King Saul's personal musician, right? Where David is King Saul's personal armor bearer. Where David is loved by King Saul. Where David has found favor in the sight of King Saul. So what is happening here? Sort of, now you see him, now you don't. Now you know him, now you don't know him. In chapter 16, Saul knows David. In chapter 17, Saul doesn't know David. Look at verse 56, chapter 17. It continues this inquiry about who is this David 
verse 56. And the king said, Inquire whose son this young man is. Then as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, is Saul suffering from the early stages of dementia? Is old age setting in and he's getting forgetful? Are the sticky notes, you know, that we used to use, now we use our smartphones more, but the sticky notes we used to write little, you know, reminders on and they, you know, stick them here, you got to remember where you stick them, but are they falling off of the mind of Saul? Is he purposely, Saul, is he hiding the fact that he knows David? Well, the text nowhere gives merit to any of those suggestions. What the text does do, however, is to purposefully and intentionally downplay the mentioning and the identification of David at the end of this account. Even though David is supposedly known by the king. So at the end of chapter 17, David is the unknown. Even though at the end of chapter 16, David is the known. So what's going on here? I would suggest to you there is something called, it's out of order, chronological order. That our God, who is above time and outside of time, and who has ordered the text and given us the text, isn't subject like us to give it 100% of the time according to a chronological order. That 1 Samuel 17 and 1 Samuel 16 have been reversed for a point, to draw attention to God and less attention to David. I would suggest to you it's not an act of deception, it's more an act of inscription. That God is not restrained by time. So we have this at the end of chapter 17 when all the attention should be on David. This guy has just taken out Goliath. That, that he should get all the focus and yet at the end of chapter 17, he is like, nobody knows who he is. Why? Because God wants the attention on himself. That God must be first in all points of your life and in mine. And the text is purposefully highlighting, intentionally pushing this to the forefront, that, that God gets all the glory. That it is our God who is fighting the battle. That it is our God who has derived the battle plan. That it is not David, but it is God himself, the God of David. Let me close with a takeaway from this passage. And the takeaway is that you've heard me say the battle is the Lord's. The battle plan is the Lord. God has a plan. His plan is always perfect, is it not? His plan sees the bigger picture that we don't always see. But what he's given to us is a beautiful thing to be partner with him. That though God fights the battle and his plan is at the forefront, we are given the steps to obey it, the obedience. Think about your life and where you are today. There may be a struggle you're facing. There may be a decision that's weighing heavy on you right now. There may be a job situation, a family situation, a health, whatever it may be, there's something to the forefront that's pressing against you. There, there may be a stressor in your life. And don't, you know, give the elbow to the person beside you. 
There may be life situation that's sending you out of orbit and you feel like you're out of control. I invite you to the one who is over life, who is greater than life, to the one who can walk with you and will walk with you through the decisions of life. As Jesus stepped on the scene, you, you love the, one of the, to me, I, I love the book of Job because you've got these three friends of Job. And they don't really end up being really friends of Job. They kind of come alongside and they listen to him, but they ultimately critique him and criticize him and blame him. But it's a fourth guy who steps in only after the three have sort of said all that they can say, and it's Elihu. And Elihu steps into the, the midst of Job, and he begins to give this incredible counsel. And only then, after Elihu speaks, God, who has been silent for 30 chapters, now finally speaks. It's almost as if Elihu is preparing the way for God to speak. Same thing is with John the Baptist. When John the Baptist is on the scene, he is preparing the way for the Lamb of God. And John says this rather poignant, powerful message that we need to listen to. John says this, very simple and straightforward, succinct. As he points to Jesus, he must increase, I must decrease. That, that what we need most is more of God. And God gives us all of him. That we don't need more philosophies and plans, but we need more of the wisdom of God. And this is the story of David and Goliath, that, that when God is not first, then we will get ourselves wrong and we will get our lives wrong. If you get God wrong, how do you get God wrong? You distort who God is. You can doubt who God is. You can even deny who God is. When we go that direction, then we begin to get ourselves wrong, and then we get our lives wrong, which is why if we get God right, which is called theology, good theology, then we get ourselves right, and we get God right. That's the emphasis here, is that David has a healthy view of God, that God is the one who fights the battle, that God is the one at the forefront of this, that this is not between David and Goliath, it's between God and Goliath. Where is your obedience today? God has given to us four resources. First one is time. Every one of us have 24 hours a day, 168 hours a week, no more, no less. What will you do with the time that God has given to you? Our time in the Word shouldn't be like driving up to the gas station, filling up once a week, and then we're good for the rest of the week. That, that God wants our time and, and that our time should be in the Word, our time should be surrendered and committed to Him, that we ought to be a people praying without ceasing. What's that mean? That we're cognizant of time, that we ought to have this prayerful mindset of His presence. There is also our talents, that, that God has given every one of us gifts in the body of Christ, gifts that we get to use for his glory. That as we see that he's first in our life, we're using these gifts to minister one to another. 
blessing others, endowing others with our giftedness. And then there are our treasures. The focus in scriptures of our eternal treasures, it's not so much our temporal treasures. Our temporal treasures so often get us into trouble, don't they? We are called to lay up our treasures in heaven. Gal asked me that earlier this morning. How do we do that? How do you lay up your treasures in heaven? You invest in people. Because people are the only ones that are going to live forever. These chairs don't have a soul. This building doesn't have a soul, but people do, and they will live on. So how do we send our, me- our money on ahead? How do we invest our treasures by investing them in people in ministry? And finally, in truth, God's given to us the gospel that we get to share with others. That we are called witnesses and messengers and ambassadors of our great and glorious God. And so that no matter where we are, we're ready to share what's happened in our lives. And I'm looking forward to tonight and these first two questions of of my testimony. But we all have a testimony. And Peter challenges us on that so that when someone comes to us and they say, what's going on with you? Why are you so different? Why did you react that way? You can say, listen, you can have that answer. Be ready always to give an answer to anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that's in you. It's because we have the truth, the truth of God's word. So is God truly first in your life? Is he getting all the glory? As you face that challenge before you today or tomorrow or next week, be sure it's coming. Remember the constant in your life. It's God. And remember you are the variable. Submit yourselves to the one who never changes. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your your love. Thank you for your constancy in our life. Thank you that you never give up on us. You're relentless in your pursuit of conforming us to the image of your son. That nothing will separate us from your love. That what you've begun in each one of us in salvation, you will continue and you will complete it. I pray for those here today who may not know you, who know about you, who have heard the stories of David and Goliath, of Jonah and the great fish, of Moses and the Red Sea, but have never personally met the Savior, that this would be that day when we recognize and admit that we're sinners desperately in need of a rescue, that we're drowning in the ocean of our own sinfulness, and the only rescue is the Savior. We pray that this would be that day of salvation for that one who's here today. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. That we connect the head and the heart. 
that we shall be saved. Thank you, Lord, for your great word. Thank you for these narratives in the Old and the New Testament that continually point us back to who you are, of your greatness in our lives, that you are the one who fights our battle, that you're the one who's gone before us, that your son rose again on the third day. He's ascended into heaven, and he invites us, and he waits us for us at the finish line, and it will be worth it all, and we shall see you face to face. But till then, may we press on with that awareness that you are ever before us, that you are with us, that you've got our back. The best is yet to come. And we want to give you the glory in your son's precious name. Amen. All right. Thank you, Pastor Jim. Hope to see you all tonight, 6 o'clock, right here in this room. Uh, bring your tough questions. I think Brad's already told me that he's going to say, uh, explain the Trinity. And, and that's going to be his one, because uh, Pastor Jim tried to stump him at his ordination council, so it's kind of funny. Think about these things as we shared them, uh, as Pastor Jim has shared them with you this morning. Uh, come uh, get some refreshment this afternoon. Come back tonight and join us for the Q&A time. God bless you. You are dismissed.